back to Recycle by Eurosport, the most compelling, the most controversial and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. They're all here. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Last time out, we rode with King Kelly on his plunge off the Poggio to win the 1992 edition of Milan San Remo. Our journey back in time is not far for this edition of Recycle. Just five years, in fact, to the crazy, windswept 2015 Ghent Wevelgem. In apocalyptic conditions, with riders being blown off the road and into muddy ditches, the bearded Italian veteran Luca Paolini proved the strongest on a day of blustery subplots, cobbled catastrophe, and endless drama. Perhaps best remembered as the day a future Tour de France winner was blown off his bike, it was a race that gave birth to a new type of weather. Ghent Wevelgem weather. There are crosswinds with minor quibbles. Then there are crosswinds of waspish fury. Bitter, resentful, indignant gusts, incandescent with rage. Drafts of displeasure, typhoons of tetchiness, gales of aggravation. You get the picture. On the 29th of March 2015, the crosswinds which blew apart the peloton on the roads of Belgium and northern France was something else entirely. One of the major Belgian races in the lead-up to the Tour of Flanders. Gent-Wevelgem often courts unexpected drama. In the year 2000, Eric Zabel was knocked off by a stray black horse. Three years later, Italian stallion Mario Cipollini was disqualified for throwing his water bottle at a motorcycle. But no one could have expected the level of sustained excitement and sheer farce as happened in 2015. A race often reduced to a routine finish for the sprinters was turned on its head and developed legendary status over the course of 6 hours and 20 minutes. In a now famous article, the former semi-pro cyclist Tiege Zonneveld wrote for NU.nl that it seemed as if the 2015 edition lasted for a week at least. So much happened yesterday that you cannot fit it in one day or on one course, and certainly not in one column. To describe yesterday's Gentwevelgem, you need at least a 60,000-page trilogy printed in very small print. You can write a chapter or ten about the wind that blew away cyclists and their bikes like plastic bags from Aldi over an empty parking lot. You can type a speech of 100,000 words about the madness of a race hit by Gale Force 9, and you can write just as big a plea about its beauty. For race organiser Greet Langerdok, it was something of a dilemma. Never before had the volunteer firefighter been forced to work so hard in the space of a shift that seemed never-ending. As she succinctly summarises, it was perfect afterwards. The day itself, panic, worries. The first problem for Langadoc that Sunday was not, funnily enough, related to the cold winds that came off the North Sea and pummeled the flat Flemish farmlands at speeds of up to 90 kilometres per hour. There was, first of all, the small matter of a farmer's protest being staged at the start town of Deinze, and then again, later, at the top of the Kemmelberg cobbled climb. Within a few minutes of the start, Langadoc had received numerous calls from the director's seat at the finish line. The live broadcast had not yet started, but the production team were watching the images as the peloton was brought to a standstill by the protest after just five kilometres. I knew that this was only a small protest, Langadoc recalls and that at the Camelberg there were 500 of them. Oh, I thought. I hope this is going to go well. The race soon got going, but the problems had only just begun. 
Then I got another call just before the live broadcast and I was told I should come over. So I went over to the director's room and I saw the images. I thought they were of another race. I didn't recognise it. I said, this is Gentwevelgem? It's happening live? You're kidding. What Langadoc saw was so crazy it bordered on the comedic. Riders were fanning out across the road, leaning into the wind or being carried off by gusts like kites on a blustery beach. Some riders hit the deck or went down in mini pile-ups, others were blown onto the grass verge or, worse, into irrigation ditches running alongside the road. An early break had the wind blown out of their sails and had been buffeted back into the bunch. It was a bunch that would be cut in half with still well over 100 kilometres remaining, not that there was ever anything remotely resembling a peloton. By now, it had fragmented after numerous echelons formed on a long, straight and exposed tree-lined alley. I had a lot of people calling and sending messages, friends who were watching at home, Langadoc says. I wasn't able to watch because it was one problem after another. But I had people asking me what was happening, saying there are riders being blown off the road. And I was like, guys, aren't you exaggerating with this? Is that possible? How can a rider be blown away from the road? One of the many calls she received, but couldn't initially pick up, was from her cousin, who was driving the broom wagon for the first time. I got calls from him and his co-driver telling me they were absolutely full. Both wagons were full with 20 bikes and they had no more space, says Langadoc. She had to call the publicity vehicles and speak to a company that made puddings, who happened to have a refrigerated truck to spare. It was transferred to the back of the race and this pudding wagon was soon filled with excess bikes. As the corresponding women's event approached the business end of their race, the calls kept coming. I got a call from the parkours in Menen, saying there were some tiles dropping from the roof of the church, says Langadoc. The fire brigade was sent in to clean up the tiles on the road and assess the damage and potential danger, all while the women's race was closing in. Langadoc also took calls from people in the VIP area who were worried that their marquee would blow away at the finish, followed by calls from the publicity wagon saying the roadside barriers were falling over. Then another call from the head of the farmers' union complaining about the lack of aerial images. If the grounded helicopters were not sent up to film their protest on the Kemmelberg, the head of the farmers' union threatened to block the road on the second passing, at a key point of the race. It was a nightmare, says Langadoc, and not just one nightmare. It was a nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. I think I too would have been one of the Wiggins contingent who climbed off early on, Brian Cookson jokes. The then president of the UCI was at the race on a VIP coach stopping at certain viewpoints along the course. He recalls the hideous weather. It was pretty grim from the start with the rain absolutely lashing down and the wind building up. It caused mayhem, not helped by the fact that deep section rims were catching the crosswind even more. It was horrendous. Cookson says that it was not down to him, but down to the commissars and the race organisers to decide whether the conditions were too dangerous to race that day. I do know that they took it seriously and they were concerned, he recalls. In fact, they were pretty close to calling it off on a couple of occasions. According to Langadoc, neutralisation was discussed, but it was decided it would have probably put the riders in more danger by congregating them and exposing them en masse to the elements. We had to give them the possibility to ride left or right, to go with the wind a bit. We couldn't put them back in a bunch. It was impossible to neutralise the race, she says. Most of the devastation occurred around 70 kilometres in to the 240 kilometre race, 
when the course turned south and crisscrossed the border between Belgium and France. Belgian rider Gert Stiegmans, who grew up racing on these same roads, lost control and sploshed into a muddy irrigation ditch. A photographer even captured the Trek factory racing rider laughing as he clambered out of the water. Matt Heyman, Luke Durbridge, Lars Back and Dmitry Gruzdev also took a plunge, with the Kazakh's bike left floating symbolically in the canal. Michael Shah also fell into a ditch. Lukas Wisniewski and Matty Breschel lay in a crumpled heap after a cobblestone pileup, while Martin Velitz broke his collarbone in a crash that also involved Etix quickstep teammate Mark Cavendish. Other riders who fractured bones included the 2009 winner, Edvald Botenhagen, who, having crashed in the same ditch as Stiegmans, later ploughed into the barriers on the market square of Kassel. Back at the front of the race, the early break was caught, and then, with around 125 kilometres remaining, the selection was made. The winning move took shape before any of the climbs had even begun. With wind pummeling the peloton from the left, the pack split into at least four echelons. Eventual winner Paolini could be seen fighting tooth and nail to make it into the front group as everyone struggled to hold formation. At this point, Paolini was still working for his Katusha teammate Alexander Kristoff, although he soon got the Norwegian's blessing to go for glory himself. The rain might have eased, but the drama didn't dry up. Frenchman Sylvain Chavanel struggled to take off his jacket in the gusts. Unable to take his hands off the bars, it took him a few kilometres to finally extricate himself from the garment. No such luck for New Zealand's Jack Bauer. The Cannondale Garmin rider came screeching to a stop in a feed zone when a rival's jacket, not Chavanel's, became tangled in his spokes with 64 kilometres remaining. Narrowly avoided by a following car, an exasperated Bauer picked up his bike and hurled it into a ditch. He later spoke of what he admitted was unsportsmanlike conduct to Velo News. I really have to apologise to the team, to the mechanics, to the fans and to everybody watching. That's not something anyone should do. It was just a moment of frustration. In the commentary box for Eurosport that day, Brian Smith couldn't believe what he was seeing. This is absolute carnage. I've never seen a race like this where riders have been blown pretty much off their bikes and into the side verges. One rider who managed to stay on his bike and get into the lead group was Team Sky's Geraint Thomas. He remembers he was definitely aware that people were being blown off left, right and centre. Thomas says the crazy conditions that day were nothing like he's experienced before or since. It was the hardest day I've ever raced. Obviously cold and wet is horrible and probably harder mentally, but those windy conditions were the hardest just to finish. It was survival of the fittest. Fortunately, I had some good shape then and was able to stay on my bike. Famous last words. A few kilometres after Bauer's bike throw, and moments after Paolini, despite having crashed twice already, bridged over to the front group, the leaders swung round an exposed corner and were body slammed by another sudden squall. Sepp van Mark, Daniel Oss and Thomas could all be seen leaning into the wind in a bid to stay upright. But, blown to the right and with Oss watching incredulously over his shoulder, Thomas unclipped his right foot to balance himself, then... In the words of Tej Zonneveld, hovered over the roadside like a fakir on a flying carpet before he somersaulted over his handlebars and on to the grassy verge. It was a crash that inspired thousands of internet memes and, says Langerdock, made it look like it was the first time Thomas had ridden a bike. So, what exactly went through the Welshman's mind as he flew through the air? The race had settled down by then, he says. We were in the break and we thought the wind had died down a bit. 
but we turned this 90 degree left and suddenly there was a gust and it blew me onto the grass. I was just thinking, oh no, have I managed to survive the craziness just to crash now? But luckily it was a soft landing. I was straight back on my bike and I managed to get back to the group pretty quickly, which was good. What might have happened had Thomas managed to stay upright, we'll never know. I don't think it affected my performance, he says. You've got a little bit of adrenaline from it, obviously, but it was one of those races where stuff was happening all the time. Before you knew it, something else was happening and you'd forgotten about it. Obviously, it would be good not to fall and chase back because you use up a lot of energy, but I don't think it affected me in any way. With 45 kilometers remaining, lone leader Jürgen Rolands of Belgium had two minutes over the main group of favorites and four over what was by then a sorry excuse for a peloton. Paulini, on his third bike of the day, suffered and was dropped on the Camelberg. While the climb was not blocked by tractors, Paulini dug deep and managed to fight back. Roland's time on the front was over. Nicky Terpstra punctured. His quick-step teammate Steen Vandenberg then put in an attack. Terpstra clawed himself back into contention and then himself attacked with Paulini in pursuit. Thomas was then forced to lead the chase with Vandenberg sandbagging his back wheel. It was a frustrating finale for Thomas, who entered the race as one of the in-form riders after his victory in E3 Haraldbacher days earlier. Well, I was the favourite. I was flying, Thomas half-jokes. So yeah, I was surprised that Paulini won. I think the way the race went, there were two quick steps there, both watching me like hawks, and whenever I moved, they would move so I was trying to cover them. When Paulini went, I thought it was up to the two quick-step guys to go, because I'm not covering it to have them cover me all the time. Then also try and follow all those other moves. So, I left it to them, and, in typical quick-step fashion, they balled it up. Seeing that his rivals were all finished, Paulini made his speculative yet decisive move with six kilometres to go. The oldest man in the front group took advantage of the bickering behind him to open up a gap that he would keep all the way to the finish. The 38-year-old was the first of only 39 riders to cross the line, pointing to his head and chest as he freewheeled to one of the best wins of his career. He would later explain that his gesture meant you needed your head and your heart as much as your legs to win a race in such conditions. Terpstra and Thomas, described by Langadoc as like the living dead when they came in, completed the podium some 11 seconds in arrears. For Langadoc, it was a relief to see the remaining riders come home in one piece, and an added bonus that the finale was so exciting. As she recalls, finally, after a long day full of calls and full of problems, and full of, oh my god, this race is going to stop, this race is going to be stopped, this race must stop, at the end, you finally have Paulini having the biggest victory of his life. It was like man with beards. We have this song, Only Real Men and Men with Beards, and we look up and have Paulini with his beard, and it was weather for the real man. We survived, we made it, and it was like thousands of pounds suddenly lifted off my shoulders. So, what happened next? Two months later, on the eve of the Giro d'Italia, Paulini extended his contract at Catusha by one year. Another two months on, and he was kicked out of the Tour de France after testing positive for cocaine. Paulini argued that this was technically an out-of-competition positive, for he'd taken the drug at a low point in his life at a training camp to help cope with an addiction to caffeine and sleeping medicine. 
Although the UCI judged that he had not intended to breach the anti-doping rules, Paolini was banned for 18 months and sacked by Katusha. Following his ban, he was unable to find a new contract. Having trained hard to get back in shape, he reluctantly retired, aged 40. On retiring, Paolini updated his Twitter profile to read, I'll be right back, I'm making a new life. That new life involves running an historic coffee house on the shores of Lake Como, named Cafe Monte, a stone's throw from the finish of Il Lombardia, a race in which he finished fourth in 2009. As for Thomas, the versatile Welshman has not yet won another classic, instead choosing to put his eggs in a very different basket. Was this the race Thomas decided to call it a day in the classics? No, says Thomas, it wasn't. It was because on the tour that year, I was fourth going into stage 19, and I thought I could do something in the grand tours as well. That's where I wanted to give it a really good go and not try and do a bit of everything. His decision would pay off. After twice finishing 15th in the race, before then crashing out in 2017, he became the first Welshman to win cycling's biggest prize. They say a three-week grand tour ages you, but for Ghent Wevelgem organiser Greet Langerdok, one day was enough. That race, I aged many years, she says. It was only the day after when I was able to watch the race and I was like, oh my god, how exciting is this? For the fans at home and media, it was a case of, wow, what is happening out there? But as an organiser, I died. I died several times that day. In recent years, since the development of the UCI's extreme weather protocol, competitive rides in conditions as hard as this have become few and far between. As Cookson, the man who presided over the introduction of the protocol, explains, we look at things more cautiously from the safety point of view now. That's right and proper. I think, probably, some of the epics of the past would not be tolerated today. Snow and stuff like that. If the riders are being put in danger, that's not acceptable. And that's why, at the UCI, we introduce the extreme weather protocol. The man who was blown off the road and off his bike agrees that today there probably would be no place for the Ghent Wevelgem we saw in 2015. I don't think there's a place for it, really, says Thomas. I don't think we'd race in those conditions now. It was just crazy. It was too dangerous. But everyone speaks about it now, and it's kind of what cyclists love. You always complain about hard days, but then you look back and you're seen as legends, hard men and whatever. But I think that was definitely too dangerous, and we shouldn't have raced. It was a race that led to a new meteorological expression in Flemish, as Langedoc recalls with delight. In Belgium, it's even a type of weather, she says. People don't always say, it's windy, or it's raining. They say, it's Gent-Wevelgem weather. Not only in Belgium, but you see it on Twitter. It has become a weather type. It was also exactly the kind of race that probably won the sport more fans. Just ask Tiege Zonneveld, who concluded his own review of that day, with these memorable lines. Let me put it this way. The next time someone asks you why, for God's sake, you always watch cycling, drag that person by their hair to a computer, type YouTube Gent Wevelgem 2015 into a Google search and click play. Because yesterday's race is the best proof that cycling is the toughest, most ridiculous and most beautiful sport there is. Luca Paolini, serving coffee on the shores of Como, no doubt agrees. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wildos. 
Pete Burton was our producer. You can find Felix on Twitter at Salways, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete exactly where you left him. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can catch us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts.